Cecil B. DeMille did wonders in his film, The Ten Commandments, bringing to life this part of the Old Testament. If you were old enough to have seen the movie when it was first released, particularly if you saw it in a Cinerama theater, the buildup to the Passover was nail-biting, knuckle-whitening enough. The tension as Moses prepares his people for the coming destruction, the scrambling to find lambs, painting the lintels and doorposts, it grows and grows as time ticks away. And then the angel of death begins to descend from the sky. DeMille told journalists and biographers how tricky it was to get that swirling mist to drift out of the sky and down onto the paving stones in front of some rude dwellings. These were the early days of special effects, but audiences were quite forgiving. If the storyline and the action were riveting, it didn't matter how crude the special effects might be. Except that this effect still works. The moment that mist begins to appear in the night sky, one's breath still catches today. But for surviving the test of time, nothing beats the biblical text standing on its own. Why? The power of God is literally breathtaking. As chapter 11 of Exodus opens, we're already aware of that immense power, that God has inflicted nine dramatic and dangerous plagues on Egypt but Pharaoh was not moved to action. This is not an indictment of the Almighty's power, but a continuing process of hardening Pharaoh's heart until he's able to connect the dots and understand the overwhelming power of Moses' God. Remember that Pharaoh, like many rulers throughout the centuries, was thought by his people to be divine. Even as punishment for his obstinacies were visited upon his people, we're reminded that this was not an age of compassionate leadership, nor would have a divine leader been expected to be compassionate. Yahweh does not always spare the Israelites his own people. So we shouldn't be too surprised that Pharaoh isn't moved to compassion at the fate of those killed by the previous plagues. And the Egyptians don't seem to be angry at Moses and his people. In fact, Terence Fretham writes that many of the Egyptians actually regarded the Israelites in a positive manner, that their neighbors would probably give freely of their silver and gold articles and of their clothing as instructed in verse 2. Hence, he writes, the gifts must be genuine. Even more, Moses in particular was highly regarded by every Egyptian but one, Pharaoh. Note that in verse 8, Pharaoh's own servants will bow before Moses, which indicates that they will be able to make sense of God's power and recognize his power as superior to that of Pharaoh. This was personal between Pharaoh and God. So Pharaoh had to be broken completely and his lack of divinity exposed for the lessons to sink in. We all learn slowly. The lessons we learn the best are those we struggle to master, and those are the lessons we tend to remember the longest. By the end of the ninth plague, where the Israelites have light for three days while everyone else was in darkness, and at the end of the fifth plague, where the Israelites' livestock has been spared, and during the sixth plague, where the Israelites were not killed by hail, one would have thought that Pharaoh would understand the Lord's power in some deeper sense. But Pharaoh was not harmed himself. 
His people suffered, and then the plague stopped. Some people perished, but not all. Some crops were ruined, but not all. Now God is ready to teach the final lesson, a lesson that Moses knows to be the last one. This time, Moses is not to ask Pharaoh to let the people go. God assures Moses that they will not only be allowed to leave, but Pharaoh will drive them from the land. Pharaoh's heart is about to be softened, but at a terrible cost. The number 10 represents completion or fullness in scripture. By the eighth plague, Pharaoh's servants were arguing in favor of letting the people go. Notice that Pharaoh seems willing to let the men go, but not everyone, as the locusts are blown away. Then he's willing to let all the people go, but not their livestock after the ninth plague. Moses will not compromise. And Pharaoh doesn't seem to be getting the big picture. There must be a fullness to the prophetic confrontation of Pharaoh before Pharaoh can give a full commitment to releasing God's people. The 10th plague is coming. Remember that the Egyptians are not the only ones whose hearts are being softened and whose faith in the God of Moses should be strengthened through this process. The Israelites are witnesses to all of these events. And they're watching earlier prophecies come to fruition. In chapter 3, Moses is instructed to introduce himself to the Israelite elders and tell them that God will deliver his people, that the Egyptians will give the Hebrews the gold and silver and clothing that they demand as they leave Egypt. But in chapter 6, we learn that the Israelites do not listen. Perhaps others have made the same promises, or perhaps they're too broken to respond to any prophecy. Moses is starting with a clean slate among all audiences, Israelite and Egyptian. Would the Israelites have packed up and left Egypt under Moses' guidance if Pharaoh capitulated after the first plague? It's an interesting question. All things are possible for God, of course, but we're talking about a people who may not have been fully persuaded until one event was stacked on top of another. In advertising, there is an adage about the rule of seven, that it takes seven or more messages to move a consumer to action. That's why even if we see the same commercial over and over again for a product we find of interest, we might not think to buy it because it's not a usual purchase or we don't remember the name of the product. For something to become habitual or accepted, a process of integrating that concept into our consciousness is necessary. That's why the rite of Christian initiation is a process even for those who believe and feel ready at the outset to come into the church. It's a process of accepting new practices and new traditions along with deepening one's belief, which doesn't happen overnight. Over and over, Moses promises a plague and the plague materializes. Over and over, Moses demands that the Israelites be set free, then sets another plague upon the Egyptians. It's no surprise that Pharaoh's people begin to understand some connection and that Pharaoh's servants begin to understand the connection between the two actions. But the tenth will be different. Moses warns Pharaoh of the Lord's plan. 
In verse 4, Moses tells Pharaoh that the Lord will act by saying, about midnight, I will go forth through Egypt. And he details the tragedy that will follow in his wake. Pharaoh's son will perish, as will all of the firstborn from the highest to the lowest household throughout the country. When Moses speaks this direct threat to Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, in verse 5, this is not only a direct threat to the powerful ruler standing in front of him with armies at his command, but also a threat to Pharaoh's status as God-king. Pharaoh cannot physically force Moses to stop demanding the release of his people, nor can he stop the coming slaughter being promised in the name of the Almighty. This is all very dramatic and makes sense to us with our centuries of tradition and study. But there's also a moment of near absurdity for the modern reader. Moses continues his pronouncement in verse 5 by saying, as well as all the firstborn of the animals. Killing people is breathtakingly harsh, particularly killing the innocents. Killing animals doesn't seem to fit the horror of the situation, but this has more cultural significance than one might think. Note in verse 7 the mention of a dog serving as an example of Israelite animals being spared. Egyptians domesticated animals and seemed to care for them greatly. In ancient history, Cambyses II of Persia is said to have routed the Egyptian army in 525 BC by driving cats ahead of his own forces, reckoning correctly that the Egyptian forces would surrender or flee rather than kill the cats. Perhaps the Egyptians were fearful of offending Bast, the cat goddess who was the protector of the home, which would give some rationale to the story. Those fleeing Egyptian soldiers were massacred, so their fear must have been very real. So if all the firstborn animals were to be stricken down by the god of Moses, where does that leave those Egyptians who were enmeshed in animal cultic worship? While the Egyptians may not have believed that the animals themselves were divine, they would have been representatives of the various gods and goddesses demanding protection and devotion. Plus, the firstborn would have been those sacrificed to the gods. So when Moses tells Pharaoh that the firstborn of the animals will die also, this would be a further example of how the Lord was more powerful than Pharaoh, that in effect, the God of Moses is sacrificing the firstborn to himself. It also helps us understand that the threat was not hyperbole, but rooted carefully in the immediate cultural reality of Pharaoh's Egypt. Moses and his God were tearing apart the fabric of Egyptian culture, leaving behind a legacy and a story that would never be forgotten. As chapter 12 opens with the Lord's instructions to Moses, the tone changes. We have an interlude here where God speaks directly to Moses with the instructions that will save his people from the promised destruction. The instructions are painstakingly detailed, giving the reader the impression that even one slip means death for someone in the family. Of course, we know that attending closely to God's word is important, but this is all before the Israelites have the law. 
Most Israelites would have been familiar with cultic worship rites in some form, and most would have been familiar with the unleavened bread and the lamb sacrifice as separate activities. Yahweh is establishing these rites as a ritual remembrance for this group of people who are about to be thrust from slavery by his intervention, which will give the Israelites a unique theological identity. But they must engage. They must take an active part in their own deliverance. In chapter 12, verse 14, Moses is told to proclaim that this day will be a day of remembrance for you, which your future generations will celebrate with pilgrimage to the Lord. You will celebrate it as a statute forever. This is repeated in verse 17. You must observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. As is the warning in verse 15 that whoever eats leavened bread from the first day to the seventh will be cut off from Israel which is repeated in verse 19 as, for anyone, a resident alien or a native who eats leavened food will be cut off from the community of Israel. Repetition is a time-honored literary device that focuses the mind on important points. In an oral society, a phrase repeated during a story or a narration would be the phrase best remembered. If the Israelites were already familiar with the unleavened bread rite as natives of the region who knew that farmers scoured their dwellings of old leaven each spring, the rite would have had some ritual significance. Here, Yahweh is re recasting that rite as a perpetual enactment of the divine hand behind the Exodus, not just the Exodus event itself. And there is no question that the people are being told to remember this event and to memorialize this event as part of the cultural identity. In fact, Fretham writes that the event itself is liturgy. The same is true of marking the doorways with blood. They are to remember this ritual in the same way that they are to remember the unleavened bread ritual by observing the rite when they enter the promised land in chapter 12, verses 24 through 27. Note also the amount of time that passes between Moses' threat to Pharaoh and the actual plague. This gives the immediate task facing the Israelites a very human scale. Everyone's got a lot to do. First, Moses has to give them the news, and it's really good news. The Lord will deliver them, and he's got a timeline. Next. Everyone has to comply with procuring a lamb on the 10th day of the month, according to verse 3, in some combination of families that will allow the entire lamb to be consumed. It's got to be perfect, without blemish, male and one-year-old. And the list of requirements goes on to prescribe every step of the process. What, one wonders, were the pagan passers-by thinking when they saw these Israelites wiping blood on their doorposts with hyssop? Maybe nothing much. Maybe these sorts of rituals went on at various times throughout the land. But the enactment on the big screen makes one wonder why the pagans didn't smear blood on their doorposts in hopes that whatever was protecting the Israelites would protect them too. 
Maybe some did. But the blood rite was only part of the ritual and of the theology, as we know from reading the entire text of God's instruction to Moses and Moses' instruction to the people. Since the Israelites were prepared for the journey, they left at once. The work of the angel of death was swift. Pharaoh's reaction was equally swift. The Israelites were free and left with everything, children, flocks, and wealth. Chapter 12 continues with further instructions from the Lord about how Passover is to be celebrated. And we also get a glimpse into the households that left with the Israelites. God did not save just a small band of his chosen people. The households of the Israelites would have included the tenants and the hired workers and the aliens and the slaves, all of whom appear as separate categories in verses 43 through 49. What's interesting is how inclusive this list seems to be. Yes, categories of people to be excluded from the ritual Passover meal are laid down in this command, but there is an escape clause. Some God-fearers among them can be included by undergoing another ritual. In verse 43, for example, no foreigner is to eat of the Passover meal, but in verse 48, the alien can join the celebration by undergoing circumcision with the rest of his household. The slaves can be brought into the community by undergoing circumcision, according to verse 44, as long as they have been purchased. In other words, those who joined the Exodus with the Israelites in awe and fear of the Lord and who understand the rituals of his people can become one with those people. So in spite of the aliens and the slaves and tenants and the hired workers who may not have been part of the 12 tribes, a true faith community is on the move as chapter 12 comes to a close. In verse 50, we learn that all the Israelites did exactly as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. An amazing statement. Their belief that Moses spoke with and for God must have been profound. Their belief that God was truly about to liberate them must have been overwhelming. And their desire to be free must have been palpable. They leave Egypt under the Lord's watchful eye to begin lives of faith that are very, very different.